What is up, families? Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise a Doctor Wisdom from Parents Who Did It, and Pre-Man Mondays. Both books are available on Amazon.com. Make sure you grab your copies there. And of course, you listen to the Black Men in White Coats podcast, a place where black male clinicians have the platform to share their stories with people like you. Man, I am super excited about today's guest. He's a great guy, a guy who, you know, he and I just hop on the phone and just chat from time to time about a lot of stuff, but obviously a lot about black men in white coats. And I just love his perspective. I love his energy. And you guys are going to love this episode. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him here in a second. But before I do, let me make two major announcements. And when I say major, capital M-A-J-O-R. First one is we are going to be filming the Black Men in White Coats documentary, full feature length documentary. We're going to tell the story. We're going to answer questions and we're going to bring you guys inside our lives as Black Men in White Coats and inspire. We're going to inspire generations. Our grandchildren will be inspired by this. You know, I tell people when I think back about the single thing, one of the, one of the things that really, really impacted a generation of people who look like me and not just uh, male, but female also to become medical doctors. It was a book, Gifted Hands by Ben Carson. Now, I know a lot of people may disagree with Ben Carson on a variety of things nowadays, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the book, Gifted Hands, that Ben Carson wrote years ago. That book inspired more people than I can even imagine. I bet if you go ask 10 doctors, at least a handful of them are going to have that book on your bookshelf or say they read that book. I know it's still on my bookshelf at home right now. And Black Men and White Coast, this documentary film is going to be the next thing that really, really, really inspires generations. I mean, our grandkids will be uplifted by it. White people, female men, Asians, everybody will be uplifted by this. Because even though our ultimate mission is to get more black men into the field of medicine, even more so than that, we're telling the American dream. We're telling everybody the American dream is possible for them, right? If I can make it, you can make it. That's, that's what this is about. And we're going to inspire. So we're making that film and we need your help. We're launching a Kickstarter campaign and we're launching this next Thursday, probably next Thursday. And the reason I say probably is because my second major announcement is I've been invited to be a guest on a Today Show, NBC's Today Show up in New York City. And I'm really excited about that. So they invited me to come on there and to bring a mentee. So Mr. Aaron Dotson, soon to be Dr. Aaron Dotson in about a year or so, is one of my mentees. I'm going to bring him up there. He's going to join me on today's show. We're going to talk about black men and white because we're going to talk about our mission, let America know what we're working on. And we're going to launch our Kickstarter campaign on air that day. Okay, so that is our plan. We want to make sure people know about this Kickstarter campaign. We want to make sure people know that we're all in making this documentary. We are, are we are here to change lives, to impact lives. All right. So those are the two announcements. I am super excited. But let me get back to our guest for today. Um, but you guys stay tuned. We're going to be announcing more about this Kickstarter. Make sure you're on the mailing list. Go to blackmenandwhitecoats.org and scroll down a little bit on the page, and you'll be able to get your email to us, and we'll we'll send you notifications. Okay. Dr. B.K. Edmund, Dr. B.K. Edmund, Dr. B.K. Edmund, he is the guy. You guys are going to love this episode. He is an anesthesiologist, and man, I mean, he is on fire for the mission, on fire for the mission. He does a lot of work. He's a Morehouse man. He does a lot of work um, at Morehouse, working to increase diversity in the field of medicine, specifically also working with black men, trying to get more black men in the field of medicine. And I mean, this guy is just passionate. He does stuff every year, annual events. And he's awesome. You guys are going to love what he has to see in this episode. One of my favorite things he talks about is this this concept of 
you know, being up at nighttime and having these dreams and talking about their future and what they were going to do. And that really resonates with me because I think back to when I was growing up and I had my brother and I, we shared a bedroom all throughout our childhood. And I remember we'd have these dreams where we, before we go to bed, we just talk to each other about what we were going to do in life. And um, I just love hearing how he explains his. You guys are going to love it, man. You're going to love it. So Dr. BK Edmund, thank you for joining us on this episode. You guys check it out. Oh, man, I am so excited to be here and to be able to share with you in about 15 to 20 minutes some of the insights to um, the field of medicine. My name is Dr. Byron K. Edmund, MD, and I am a black man who wears a white coat on a daily basis. Um, again, my name is Dr. Byron K. Edmund, but most people call me Dr. B.K. Edmund. I'm an anesthesiologist. An anesthesiologist is someone who basically um, helps to put people to sleep so that surgeons can uh, perform procedures on them. I've been in the field for about 25 years, and um, I, I, in order to get where I am, I had to go through being a young black boy to being a young black youth to being a young black man to being a professional man. And I hope that... Um, you find some of the things that I share with you about the medical field interesting. My story begins um, as the son of a military officer. Um, my father was a combat helicopter pilot, but um, from the ages of um, probably first grade to third grade, a lot of my education took place on military basis. I, I just remember having to fight a lot in school. I also remember being somewhat overlooked. It's almost like I was there, but um, not necessarily, you know, expected to do anything. For my early teachers, I can remember one helping with me with my reading. But other than that, uh, you know, I don't remember a lot of people giving me a lot of encouragement. Most of my encouragement came from my home. Um, I was that kind of a child that was rambunctious. You know, I was always outside. I was always getting into things. Um, and, uh, but my mother and father, they loved me and they supported me. I also have a, a older sister who is kind of like my guardian angel. I have a younger sister who was one of my best friends. And then I also have an older brother who's really kind of a visionary. But one of the things I can say is even at the early age of the third grade, me and my brother used to do something called night dreaming in order to put us to sleep. What we do is actually spend time talking about all the wonderful and exciting things that we were going to do when we get older, how we were going to travel the world, how we were going to become professionals and what our families were going to do together. One of the reasons that I'm excited about talking with you guys is it made me think back to this time. And the truth of the matter is a lot of the things we talked about came true. The take home is no matter what age you are in school, you're allowed to have dreams. And the dreams that you have right now, they play a role with what's going to happen to you later on in your life. The fact that you're listening to this podcast means that somewhere inside you, you hold the dream of becoming a physician or getting into the medical field. I'm letting you know that dreaming it and visualizing it is one of the first steps to making it happen. In the fourth grade, my life changed for 
for the first time. Our family moved to Atlanta, Georgia. We moved to a neighborhood that was filled with some dynamic professionals. The people were from different parts of the country, but all of the people moving into the neighborhood were black. Um, something occurred called white flight. And at that time, if a single black family moved into a neighborhood, the realtors would go and scare all of the other um, people in the neighborhood and convince them to sell their houses. So the realtors were making money when people were selling houses and when the black people were coming in to buy the houses. But when all was said and done, you actually had a black community that was um, filled with a lot of very um, progressive and dynamic um, black professionals. And one thing that all these black professionals had in common was they wanted great things for their children. Although I loved Atlanta, I came with some some real personal uh, issues. Number one, I stuttered. Another thing about me was I was uh, very antsy in class. Um, from a young child, they used to call it um, being hyperactive. Today, some people might say call it ADD or ADHD. But whatever the issue, I was a handful. You know, I was kind of rambunctious and I was a ball of energy. I had to take special classes to learn how to speak um, for about two years in elementary school. And academically, you know, I didn't really learn to read until a little bit late. But once I learned to read, a new world opened up. By the time I was in the seventh grade, I made my first straight A report card. And I was so excited about that. Um, little did I know I wouldn't see another one for about a good old four years. But while I was dealing with what I had going on at school, I was able to go to a place where I found, um, you know, some enjoyment. And that was Sandtown Baseball Park. And at Sandtown, all the kids in the neighborhood played ball and hung out. But Sandtown was also one of the places where I met the first black doctor that I had a real relationship with. And his name was Dr. Clyde Lord. Dr. Lord was one of our baseball coaches. And he had these kids that were all well-mannered and great kids. So even though, you know, we didn't do a lot of talking, I knew he was a doctor. I saw what he was doing and how he was interacting with his family and with his community. And I was really, really impressed by that. When I was in high school, my mom asked me what I thought I wanted to be. And um, at one time I told her, I said, hey, I think I want to be a doctor. And she said, well, what type of doctor do you want to be? And I told her, I said, I want to be a doctor like Dr. Lord. And she said, why is that? I said, because whatever type of medicine he's doing, he's out in the community. He's coaching people. He's helping people. We know him. And that's different from a lot of the other doctors that we know. Early part of high school in Atlanta was a different time in Atlanta. It was during the time when they had something called the Atlanta child murders. And it was during that period, you actually had um, young black men being murdered by someone, you know, almost every month. We couldn't stay outside. We had to be inside 
um, at an early um, time. You had to be inside before the sun went down and you could never go any place um, alone. Now, being in Georgia, you can't help but understand uh, about racism. And we turn on TV and you could see a guy named J.B. Stoner who would be talking about putting um, people in their place and that black people shouldn't have any black power and things of that nature. But the idea that someone was out there physically trying to kill as many black young black men as possible really let let our generation know that 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 we were under attack and that we were a target we learned that early now i'm a different generation from some of you guys but there's something that you guys are going through right now that's similar and that is how you guys are hearing about police um killing young black men and police shooting young black men and because there's a lot of information out there um you might feel sometimes that your way of life or your person is under constant attack we can share that in common because i actually lived through the real thing during the atlanta child murders the lessons i remember that can be applied to people who are trying to get into the medical field number one always be aware of your environment Always be aware of your environment. Number two, always stay as part of a crew, as part of a crowd. In other words, surround yourself with people going in the same direction as you. And number three, trust, make your make people earn your trust. Before you buy into someone else's vision of what you're going to be, make them earn your trust. In high school, I was a solid B student. I was a great athlete, played great basketball. I could sing and I entertained people um, as part of a show choir, but no one really looked at me in terms of academics. But when I was in the eighth grade, there was a little light that shone on me when I basically um, went to a Latin competition. And I know it sounds corny, but I did a competition on the importance of Latin. It was Latin oratory. And I came in second place. So you may say, well, what's so big about coming in second place? Well, I came in second place to a guy by the name of Chip Hawk, who was one of the smartest guys in the school. That showed me that if I really focused and applied myself, that I could possibly do some great things. No one really looked upon me as being a um, a super smart kind of academic powerhouse. Um, I think they thought I was a nice guy and might do some great things in politics or something, but I wasn't an honors student. I wasn't in, I never took an honors class. Um, My brother was in honors. My two sisters were in honors, but I was kind of, you know, the nice guy, but not really expected to do too much academically. That changed after my 11th grade year in high school. My brother had decided to go to Morehouse College, and there was a pre-freshman summer program at Morehouse where you had incoming freshmen that would come in and learn about health sciences and health sciences careers. And my brother was going to be a tutor in the program and a teacher. And he made it mandatory that if he was going to participate in the program, that they would have to accept his younger brother, who was in the 11th grade. 
And that's how I ended up Morehouse, ended up at Morehouse College. By coming to that program, I was actually the first 11th grader to come to Morehouse College and compete in the pre-freshman summer program. Morehouse College is an all-male college in Atlanta. Many of you may have seen it, you know, this past week on TV because a billionaire donated um, money to pay off all the student loans of the classes. While that's a great thing, the most important thing is the students. I want you to listen to the students. I want you to hear how they plan on paying that gift forward. And that captures the essence of what Morehouse is about, which is leadership and service. I love Morehouse College because that's where I met Addie S. Mitchell in the summer science program. Dr. Addie S. Mitchell was a lady who insisted on excellence. She was the first teacher who told me that everything I turned in had to be perfect, meaning it had to be no mistakes whatsoever. She had us go through a process where we read a book, write a report the next day, turn the report in. She would hand us another book to read, and then we'd have to write another report. The next day, we received back the graded report from the first book, and we had to rewrite the report until it was grammatically perfect and until it was, there were no mistakes in the writing. And we had to write it by hand on double spaced paper, no computers. So the reality is, is you learned how to write, you learn how to speak, you learn how to communicate in that, in that class. But you also learned about hard work because you might be reading one book, getting ready for another report while you're rewriting up to three to four papers. She was also important because she insisted on us valuing education and she let us know that people had um, bled and died for the opportunity for us to actually pursue science and pursue knowledge. You were not allowed to be late to her class. If you were late, she'd tell you to leave by door window, whichever is more accessible. But more importantly, she made us memorize poems that I carried onto the medical wards. One poem was called God's Minute. It goes, I've only just a minute. Only 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it, give account if I abuse it, just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. At the end of the summer, I won the award for reading in English, but I also won the award for biology. Because of my performance, they actually, they actually looked at me and they offered me a full scholarship to start college after my 11th grade high school year. I turned it down because I was SGA president and I wanted to play basketball and I wanted to have the experience of my um, senior year. But during that summer, I can say that the 30 guys in that summer program were great guys. There are four of them that I'm still in contact with today. And to be honest with you, I know there's been a lot of talk about black men making it into medicine. The four guys who I hung out with that summer, all of them are doctors already and stuff. And in fact, I know up to 20 guys from that program that became physicians. But my hat's off to Lloyd Bridges, Kenyon Fort, um, Miles Johnson, and Frank Jones. Frank Jones, in particular, is really, really interested in terms of getting more African-American men into the health sciences. When I came to Morehouse College, my brother was already there. And he gave me the three rules of doing well in college. I want to share them with you all, and I hope they help you. Rule number one, 
you're only in college for three years. Now, I know you're telling me no college lasts four years. No, you're only in college for three years because if you go the traditional route, you're going to be applying to medical school, law school or grad school during your senior year. So colleges only met graduate schools only have six semesters to gauge how well you're doing. The second thing is you have to get off to a fast starting college. Go to an environment where you know you're going to do well and you have to have a high GPA. The higher the GPA, the better. It's more important for you to have a high GPA at the end of the semester and less courses than to have a lot of courses and, a, and an average or mediocre GPA. The reason being is the longer you keep a high GPA, the harder it is to bring it down. And the nature of any study, of course, for study is basically as you get older in your junior and senior year, the courses get harder and harder to do. So that's why as soon as you get out the blocks, you need to sacrifice and do whatever you need to do in order to get high grades. The last thing is the phrase work when you work, work hard. When you play, play hard. But before you play, you have to make sure that you work hard. In short, when you work, you need to throw your all into it. A hundred percent focus. Shut out the world. Focus on your work and stay on it until you finish all the way. When you play, do the same thing. But before you play, you have to complete all your work. By following those three simple rules, by the time I got to junior year, I was in pretty good academic shape and I ended up taking the MCAT and doing pretty good. But I also learned my, 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 my philosophy on life. And that is that the race is not to the swift nor to the strong, but to him, but it's to him that endures to the end. What that means is I recognize I'm not the smartest guy. I recognize I'm not necessarily the strongest guy in every environment I go into, but I put in work. And so you might be smarter or, or stronger, but there are not too many people that are going to outwork me. And that's the key to success. You may have your desires, but without the discipline of hard work, it's, it's not going to happen. When I graduated from Morehouse, I went to Harvard Medical School. And in fact, the way I got into Harvard Medical School was because I was spending time with quality people who were going in a positive direction. My best friend Dexter Haywood was being recruited by Harvard uh, because he wanted to go to their dental school. When the recruiter came down, she asked me had I applied, and I told her no. And she said, why not, and encouraged me to do so. She told me that the school was pass-fail, and I looked at Dexter, and uh, we, we smiled and laughed and said, well, hey, you know, we've never really failed at anything. Now there were sometimes we didn't do so well and took one on the chin, but every time we took one on the chin, we got up and re-engaged. So if it's pass fail, then eventually if we work hard enough, if I work hard enough, I know I'm gonna pass. Because of that, I went home and sent in my application. I was put on the waiting list, which for me was great because I'd already been accepted to about seven or eight medical schools. Now, me and Dex had this plan to go to the same medical schools. So we'd actually been accepted over at Michigan, 
UNC, uh, Medical College of Georgia, about seven or eight different schools. But one of our friends who was accepted to Harvard Medical School decided to go to Johns Hopkins. Instead, the next day I was called and the rest is history. I went to Harvard Medical School. There were three things about Harvard Medical School that made it stand out. Number one, you had um, unlimited resources. And it was was a phenomenal amount of resources in order for you to train yourself with. Number two, once you got in, that college, uh, that medical school was committed to you actually become the best physician that you could be. And the third thing was that uh, when I look at my, my Harvard Medical School class, there was something excellent about every single person that I interacted with. Now, every person wasn't like 100% excellent, but each one of them had one special thing that made them stand out, that made them kind of superior, and, and, and that they did better than other people. So there was just one piece of excellence in all of those people. When I look at myself, I have to ask that question of myself. What's excellent about me? What was excellent about me? And I think what it was, was that I had excellent preparation. I know I mentioned I had a summer program after my 11th grade of high school a year, but I actually attended four other summer science programs up until my junior year. By the time I was applying to medical school, I'd actually attended four summer science programs that were six to eight weeks uh, in length, and I would, had taught at another summer science program. Remember that poem, God's Minute, and about eternity being in it? I didn't waste any time once I got my focus. That's the message for you as well. Once you commit yourself to going into medicine, get a plan, stick to the plan, and pay your dues in order to make your dreams happen. Remember about those lessons during the uh, the Atlanta child murders about hanging with friends who are going in the right direction? Hey, I was hanging with Dexter Haywood. They were looking for him. And my getting in was a byproduct of being around people who were going places. On my journey at Harvard, there were some challenges. And I have to be honest with you. One of the first was getting used to the academic uh, pressures. Um, it wasn't um, Morehouse. Now, Morehouse prepared me, and there were certain things like um, in pathology, I was way ahead of people. In terms of histology, I was way ahead of some of my classmates. But the reality was we had some academic superstars. And although they graded pass-fail, they also used what was called a curve. What a curve means is that the person who scores the highest score in the class gets to set the curve for what everybody else in the class gets. I remember being in one class, particularly, an infectious disease class, and this is a true story. Um, And we realized when we were taking the test that um, one of the people in our class actually had a PhD and was returning to get his medical degree. And he was taking our test. But what made it kind of tough was because we were studying a textbook um, and we were taking a test on material that he wrote the chapter for. So you can imagine the surprise. I think the, the a 92 um, on that test was a C. Um, so well, we had some very intelligent people. And that that it's a true story what happened there.
I did run into um an issue um on a physiology test. Um and I took a test, it was in cardiac physiology. I just wasn't quite prepared for it. And I was going to class and, and studying my notes, but wasn't just grasping the concept. And it showed when I got my test results back. But what I did was instead of um moping and getting upset, I went and got a tutor and asked for some tutorial help. And um sometimes in life you're gonna have to eat your ego. And the person who asks for help the earliest usually does the best in whatever environment you're in. So I went and asked for a tutor, and they assigned me a tutor who was, his name was Mark. He was a it was a physiology test, and he was getting a master's in um, cardiac physiology. Well, it didn't come easy, but me and Mark studied together, and he stayed with me, and we worked the issue um, night and day, and through through hard work. Through discipline, through, um, through trying and failing and trying and failing two more times and trying and failing again, I finally got a breakthrough concept on, uh, that was holding me back from mastering cardiac physiology. From then on, I understood how to study physiology and I did, um, solid work on all the rest of my test. What's funny is now on a day to day basis, I do um, anesthesia for open heart surgery. So I basically make my living doing cardiac physiology. There was another challenging event at Harvard Medical School that I, I really struggled with myself as to whether or not to share. But I do want to share it with you guys because it's um, important because it's happening to you guys uh, even to this day. Um, the day before I was supposed to graduate from Harvard Medical School, in broad daylight, with hundreds and hundreds of people walking onto um, the medical school campus, um, I was uh, stopped by the police with a with a um, uh, another a black man who went to Harvard Medical School. I had my book back on and I was just walking, and the police uh, rolled up on us and basically um, told me that I had to leave because um, uh, on, the only people allowed uh, on Harvard Medical's campus. Uh, were alumni. And um, it was an interesting situation. Um, but I told the policeman, I said, I'm a, I'm a Harvard Medical School alumnus, and he's a student. Now, the next day, um, I kept it to myself. And the next day, uh, we were going through graduation, and I really didn't want to ruin graduation for my family to let them know that an incident like that had happened. They had come up from Georgia. But um, while I was standing on the steps, um, getting ready for class pictures, um, someone came and took a cameo shot. And sure enough, um, for that month's edition of the Harvard Medical, um, magazine, um, there's a African American brother standing on the steps with glasses, who's dark skinned, who's looking off in the future, like everything's great. And right next to his face is a comment talking and and um and um talking about how great the diversity issue is at Harvard Medical School. Now mind you, that picture was taken less than 24 hours after I got rolled up on by the police. I hesitated to tell the story at first, but the reason I want to mention it is because this same thing has been happening at it happened at Yale University last year. And what's hap it's happening to a lot of African-American 
people in academic environments. For some reason, our country is moving in a direction where it's uncomfortable with African Americans being in environments of higher learning. But just as sure as that happened, I want you to understand that in, in any environment that you go into, you're going to have to find those uh, oases of grace. You're going to have to find people within whatever you guys find yourself uh, when you're in college or when you, whether you're in medical school. You're going to have to find people who can be on your team. I just hope that you find someone similar to the guy who ended up um, being one of my um, advisors. His name is Dr. Ellison G. Pierce, and he was the head of anesthesiology over at the New England Deaconess Hospital in um, Boston. I went to him as a third-year medical student and told him that I thought I was interested in anesthesiology. I'd already done a general anesthesia rotation and gotten a, an excellent grade in it. And um, Dr. Pierce uh, invited me into his office. He sat down, and if you sit me next to Dr. Pierce, I'm an African-American 6'3 guy. He's a um, uh, white-haired, um, 65, 70-ish year old guy uh, with horn-built glasses that he looks over uh, while, he's, while he's reading articles and papers on his desk. And he looks at me and he talks to me and he says, can you, you know, I'm looking at your CV. Um, uh, there's some things I would like to do for you. Before I go any further, I need to explain to you guys the difference between two people in your professional life. The first one is a mentor. The second one is an advisor or a sponsor. A mentor is someone who's doing what you want to do and doing it in the way that you want to do it. So a mentor is somebody who's maybe three or four years ahead of you or five years ahead of you who's going to basically show you the ropes on how to get to where they are. A mentor is someone who coaches you or may coach you and show you about the medical field um, uh, and, and teach you about, you know, different aspects of medicine. But a sponsor, a sponsor is someone who looks over you and looks at your um, your your skill set and utilizes his um, resources and connections in order to develop you on a professional level. So as you go into your different environments, I want you to identify people who can be a mentor for you, but then I also want you to try and cultivate relationships with people who can be a sponsor for you. Ellison G. Pierce was my sponsor. He asked me to come spend three months with him at the New England Deaconess Hospital. So as a junior or a third year medical student, I actually spent my mornings at the New England Deaconess Hospital in a specially designed program with him. I did research in the afternoons on cart on vascular um, surgery. And then I also did um, cardiac cases in the morning. So as a junior, I was putting in A lines, central lines. I was doing induction on some of the six, sickest people around. I was helping to start cases. I was reading um, and up to date on all the literature surrounding cardiac surrounding regional anesthesia and different aspects of anesthesia. And he really opened his uh, opened my eyes to the different um, um, beneficial aspects of anesthesia. Because he was the chief of the service, he assigned different people in the service based upon what he thought I needed to help 
um, me, mentor me and develop me. One guy uh, who helped me immensely was a guy by the name of Keith Lewis. Now, I know we're talking about black men in white coats, but the reality is, is medicine is medicine and knowledge is knowledge. And the person that gives you that knowledge may not look like you. He may be Italian. He may be Chinese. He may be Irish. And that's why, while we love, you know, this whole concept of black men in white coats, let's understand that in order to get the knowledge, we wear a rainbow coat. When I left Harvard, I really kept um, uh, kept the issue to myself about what happened um, before graduation. And I really didn't wear a lot of paraphernalia. And most people didn't even know I went to Harvard um, unless they really like had to did a lot of digging. And um, but I stopped doing that about a year ago when I went back to visit Harvard with my wife, who was a graduate of Harvard Medical School. Um, when I went there, I spoke with Dr. Ron Arkey. And he outlined how difficult it was to get um, African-Americans into into medical school and how difficult it was to change the culture just in the 1960s and 70s, just to give African-American men a chance to study at Harvard Medical School. And it was at that point that I that I changed. And at that now I wear it um, and I wear it because um, I earned it. I'm proud of Harvard Medical School. I'm proud of the faculty. I'm proud of the um, the the um, staff and support staff and the students. And most of all, I'm proud of the impact that Harvard Medical School has had in the medical community and continues to have on the medical community to this day. So if anyone out there gets the opportunity to go, I'm telling you 100% go. Let's ask those questions. Number one, Dr. Edmund, if you had to do it all over again, knowing what you know, would you do it? Yes. I would go into medicine in a heartbeat. Dr. Edmund, if you had to do it all over again, would you go to the medical school you went to? Yes, I would go to the medical school I went to. Dr. Edmund, if you had to do it all over again, would you go to the undergrad that you went to? You guys saw it on TV. You saw those 400 men jumping around who practiced leadership and service. Yes, I would go to Morehouse College. I want to close um, my discussion talking about the last point, which I mentioned, um, which is about trusting people. Um, I want to use an example of what happened to me when I went to interview for a medical school. Now, mind you, I had already been accepted to about three or four other medical schools and an MD-PhD program before this interview. I won't name the institution, um, but when I went to the interview, I walked in and there was a gentleman there and um, the gentleman introduced himself, and the first thing he said was, I see you went to Morehouse College, and he mentioned Lewis Sullivan, who had gone to his medical school. Now, Lewis Sullivan, for you guys that don't know, he uh, started a medical school called Morehouse School of Medicine, and he was also um, the head of Health and Human Services, um, like which is like a, cab a government cabinet member, <laughs> member um, for the Bush administration. Um, but he's known as a hardworking guy and really a walking genius. Um, but the gentleman was saying, yes, I remember Dr. Sullivan. And when we were in medical school, he used to work in the cafeteria in order to get extra money. And I was wondering where this discussion was going. And my eyebrows were raised when he mentioned that. And then he pulled out my, uh, my application said, Dr. Mr. Edmund, I have some advice for you. You know, I really think that you would do well at our medical school, 
but um, instead of accepting you into a regular class, I think that we should have you come in on a probationary um, level and basically give you some remedial work in order to um, let you earn your way into the medical school. And um, and by the way, Mr. Edmund, what are the other medical schools that you applied to? So I went on and told the guy. I told him I said I applied to this place and that place and this these other places. I, I applied to some um, mid-range schools and some upper-range schools. And what he did was basically um, told me to trust him. He said, trust me, uh, Mr. Edmund, you're not going to get into any of those medical schools. Um, I've been teaching students at this institution for 25 years, and um, I've worked with, you know, hundreds of medical students in the classes. And just looking at your um, your your application and, you know, your MCAT scores, uh, they're OK, but they could be better. Your uh, your GPA um, it's okay. Um, but, um, if I were you, I would contact Harvard, um, University of Michigan, Wash U. I would contact all of those schools and tell them, um, that you want to withdraw your application. And then, um, what you can do is come to our institution and, um, we'll, uh, work with you. And then maybe after we work with you, we will, you'll be, um, uh, able to get into medical school. After hearing this, I was uh, quiet and listened and finished the interview. Um, and uh, we left the interview by him saying, you know, I'm going to recommend that we accept you. And I hope you come to our medical school. Um, when I got up to leave, I turned around and asked him a question. I said, um, sir, you know, thank you for your advice. Um, but I have one quick question. Why is it that you don't think I'd be able to do well at a school like Harvard? And he said, well, my son went to Columbia and was a straight A student, and he had some of the highest MCAT scores around. While your MCAT scores are solid, they're not as good as my son's were. And your GPA, while it's okay, it's my son was a straight A student. And when he got to Harvard, he flunked out. And if he couldn't make it, and he was such a great scholar. Just looking at your file, there's no way that you're going to be able to get in or, or survive in an academic environment like that. I said, thank you, sir. Turned around. I walked out the door. And as soon as I walked out the door, I busted out laughing. You see, I understood where this guy was coming from. He had taught his son how to be successful. He had taught his son to be number one, to be the top guy in the class. What he hadn't taught his son was how to fail and get up. And that's how you survive. The way life is, is you do well, you have success, you run up against something that you fail at, you learn how to overcome it, and then you have more success. And then you find something else that you fail at, and then you have to start again and learn how to overcome that. Life is a series of failures and successes. So if you see someone who's had an easy ride, who's done everything perfect, who's um, where life is just going along swimmingly, that person hasn't been challenged. Remember, the race is not to the swift or to the strong. It's to him who endures to the end.
In closing, I'd like to thank my wonderful wife, Dr. Regina Edmond, my son, Jordan Edmond, for dealing with me. I hope I'm half the father that my father, Holman Edmond Jr., has been to me. I'd like to thank my mother, Lee Dorothy Edmond, my brother, Rod, who's a doctor and a lawyer down in Atlanta, my sister, Sandy, who is my guardian angel to this day, and my younger sister, Lori, who's a pediatric dentist and one of my best friends. Of course, I want to thank Dexter Haywood and uh, also uh, Morehouse College. And I hope that um, this has helped you guys along your journey. My name is Dr. B.K. Edmond, and I'm a black man in a white coat. Man, Dr. B.K. Edmond, what an episode. So when I listen to these episodes, sometimes I take notes and I just, I have way too many notes. I can't even talk about all the great stuff. I mean, how many gems did you guys get from that episode? Just gem after gem after gem. I wrote a few of them down. Let me, um, let me look at my paper here and just tell you a few of these things, right? The first one earlier on, he talked about kind of three rules, three rules that he used for success. And I'm going to remind you guys what he said. Number one, be aware of your environments. Critical, be aware of your environments. And he, and he took these out of the setting of, of the situation in Atlanta where people were, black people were being attacked and killed, the killings. So he said, you can take these out of that setting and you can put this into the, the academic medical context, help you succeed in any environment, really. So number one was be aware of your environments. Number two, have a crew. Have a crew. So people around you who are have your head on your shoulder, they're going in the right direction in life. And then after that, he talked about the story about when he went to Harvard for medical school. And the way he got into Harvard is they had some recruiters who came down there, down there to get his buddy Dexter. They were trying to recruit his friend Dexter. But because Dexter was in his crew, he ended up getting recruited also and going to Harvard for med school. So you got to be around the right people, right? Good things happen to you when you're around the right people. And then also, if you're if you're doing good things, your friends, good things will happen to them because they're around you as well. It's a mutual thing. And number three, make people earn your trust before you buy into their vision of you. So a lot of people are going to tell you this is the way your life is going to go, yada, yada, yada. But you have to have reason to believe them. Make them earn your trust. So many things he said, and I'm not going to rehash everything. But one more that I do want to say, which I really liked, um, is he talked about kind of. He talks about, you know, when he was a kid, his mom asked him, what do you want to be? He said, I want to be a doctor. What kind of doctor? I want to be a doctor like Dr. Lord. And Dr. Lord was this guy in the community. He saw baseball games because he was a baseball coach who he respected. He said, I want to be like Dr. Lord because he's back in the community giving back. He's coaching. He's doing this. He's doing that. I want to be a doctor like that. Man, that's powerful. That's powerful. Just this idea of having doctors in the community who, without even knowing it, they're inspiring people. That's what we got to get out. We got to get out in the community, whether you're a doctor or not. Let's just get out in the community, do good things, and inspire people. Inspire people. So many great things. I have a lot more things on my list, but obviously I can't rehash the whole episode. But those are just some things that really stuck, really resonated with me. And, man, go back and listen to this episode again if you need to. Just so many gems. Take notes. This is one I'm going to tell the students definitely who are listening to this. Take notes. Parents, have your kids go back and take notes on this episode because great stuff in here. Absolutely amazing stuff in this episode. Thank you, Dr. BK Edmund. Thank you for just dropping dropping jewels throughout this whole entire episode. All right, guys, I want to remind you, we're launching this Kickstarter next Thursday when I'll be on the Today Show. So I'm going to be on the third hour of the Today Show next Thursday, NBC. Set a reminder on your phone right now to make sure you watch it. And we're launching a Kickstarter that same day. So please give whatever you can give. Please give. And after you 
you give. Remember, the Kickstarters help us get this documentary out so we can inspire people that know they can become doctors and great things in life as well. So please give. And after you give, share and tell your friends to give as well. We've got we've got to raise these funds so we can get this documentary out. And I'd love for you guys to be a part of it by helping us make it happen. Thank you, Dr. Edmund. Thank you to the listeners. Love you guys. Have a great one. Yeah.